Oh, uh, welcome everybody, and, and obviously, okay. So, um, we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about, I guess, endocarditis. So, um, so obviously, the, the definition of infectious uh, of endocarditis is infection of um, of the surface of the heart and the presence of organisms, which can be, you know, doesn't have to be just bacteria, it can be fungal, rickettsia, viral, and it can involve the heart valves or uh, any septal defect or actually the endocardium itself. And we all know that you can have uh, not only the valves, but you can have the valves that are uh, uh, native, or you can have prosthetic valve endocarditis, meaning that a lot of people have metal valves, right? Um, and a special group is the IV drug users. The IV drug users is a very different group of population that we always have to. And, and you cannot talk about endocarditis without talking about Dr. Osler and his uh, amazing work uh, when he actually had the Gustosian lectures where he describes endocarditis. And this is before we have micro. So through pathology, he uh, he actually described the whole um, pathology of endocarditis. So that is something that um, in 1885 he had those incredible um, lectures. Now we traditionally now I don't know that any people talk so much about this, but traditionally you divide them into acute and subacute. And the uh, most typical example of acute endocarditis is going to be a staph aureus because I mean the patients get sick, boom, right? Um, and and, that, and the patients get very sick because it's a very aggressive organism, very pathogenic organism. So, and then you have subacute endocarditis, which is the typical one is a strep where the patient has been sick for a while. Um, those barriers kind of like are blurring, but when you think about it, that's, um, that's how you divide. Now, endocarditis was initially associated mainly with the valvular damage due to rheumatic heart disease. Um, and you can see in this picture, uh, it's a normal mitral valve, and then you have um, um, some, somebody with mitral stenosis because of um, because of rheumatic fever, and you can see where the turbulence can occur uh, because turbulence on a on a valve is what uh, predisposes you to endocarditis, and that's where you're going to have endocarditis. So that's that is the original thing, but that's changing, right? So now if you look at how how epidemiology is no longer so much associated with rheumatic heart disease, which was kind of a disease of younger individuals, to now being uh, healthcare exposure, all the things that we do to patients uh, uh, have, caught, have caused this to change. So now if you think about it, uh, no known cardiac disease is a big portion, and you also have prosthetic valves and other intracardiac devices. You know, we put AICDs, we put uh, pacers, we put all kinds of things on patients. So, so that, even the big portion is no no cardiac disease. You have uh, a portion of them that have that intracardiac disease or other non-cardiac disease. You know whether it may be uh, because the patient has whatever other uh, disease they may have. So, so the age group has also changed with time. With you can see that. Uh, because you know antibiotics and things like that, but in the past, rheumatic heart disease, where it was that important, it was a disease of the younger patients. 1920, 1926, under 30, by 1943, 39. Now, is the majority of the patients are older, over 50 years of age. Why? Because now it's more associated with being in the hospital, having devices, having all these things, rather than that group associated with rheumatic um, 
heart disease. Um, so that's a little bit of the setup. Um, nobody can talk about endocarditis without talking about the two criteria. So let's uh, kind of re let's kind of review a little bit about the two criteria. Two criteria has three components. The pathology. I mean, pathology is always. I mean, if you have a piece of bone and it has I have a whole bunch of white cells, you have osteomyelitis. If you cut a piece of breast and it has cancer, it has cancer. You're not going to question it. Well, it's the same thing. If you have a piece of valve and you either grow an organism or in pathology shows endocarditis, it's endocarditis. So that's a definite diagnosis. There's nothing like pathology to make a difference. Now, major and minor criteria is differently. Major criteria is persistent positive blood cultures. Um, we're going to talk about what we call persistent positive blood cultures in a minute. Um, you have an echo that shows the vegetation, but you know, not all vegetations are infected vegetations, right? So that is, you don't have that criteria because that you have, an, that you have uh, a vegetation doesn't mean that it's infected. There is a vegetation, but that's, uh, or you have a new regurgitant murmur that the patient, you know, have seen this patient before, so there's a new murmur on this patient. Well, that's uh, a major criteria. Minor criteria are things like having a predisposition. Um, the most common predisposition is going to be IV drug abuse or having rheumatic fever or having a uh, VSD or something important uh, that you that you know, having fever. Um, obviously, if you see um, immunological phenomena like, you know, any of the changes on physical exam, like gainway lesions or ulcer nodes or one of those things, that belongs in that category or any vascular phenomena like you have an, an emboli somewhere or something that looks like that. So, or any other one. So, um, if the, with the two criteria, if you have pathology, you're done. Or using the major criteria, if you have two major criteria, that's uh, a definite diagnosis. If you have five of the minor or you have one or three and, and so forth. So, you combine them to have them. So, you have to, you know, you have to be aware of what. The dual criteria is that's what it is, um, but um, and and it's important that in, that's an ID doctor you at least are familiar with what those are. So, um, what is uh, the positive blood culture is a major criteria, but microorganisms from two separate blood cultures that are typical. For example, if you have um, staph aureus or enterococcus, something important. Uh, but if you have something that is, for example, staph epi, um, you have to have three or the majority of more, you know, more, you have to have more cultures than that. Uh, whether if you, if you have something that is a typical, uh, like staph aureus, I mean, that's, but however, if you have something like coxella brunette in the blood or a big titer, well, you don't need to have too many blood cultures. One is enough. So it depends on the organism, how you're going to call uh, that positive culture is going to be part of the major criteria. In terms of the minor criteria, predisposition issues are things like we say about IV drug abuse, um, um, fever is obviously important, uh, vascular phenomena, genuine lesions. Genuine lesions are more like emboli versus immunological phenomena are things like Osler's um, nodes, which, is, which are evanescence. We're going to see some pictures. Like, for example, you may see the patient and you saw an Osler's node here. But then I come and it's in another finger or there or disappear because they come and go because it's more an immunological. Sometimes they can even be tender. So they're more immunological than 
Uh, not like Janeway lesions, that they're there or they're not. That's an emboli. Sometimes you, you see the emboli, we think about Janeway lesion just in the hands and the feet, but you can see them in other parts of the body. Um, you can see them in other, I mean, you may have it in an extremity, you may have it somewhere else um, in the body. But anyway, but those are more embolic. So immunological, like the ulcers, nose or the eyes, uh, or you may have um, abnormality in the kidneys, um, and those are going to be, um, so, so, so those are part of the um, minor criteria that you're going to uh, be looking at. But in terms of mycobacteria, any bacteria can cause endocarditis. And some of us that have been around for a long time, we have, obviously everybody has seen staph and strep that are the most common, but you can have from Bartonella to Klebsiella to Pseudomonas, to aspergillus endocarditis. I mean, if you have been around long enough, there isn't an organism that you haven't seen as causing endocarditis. The most common, though, are going to be a strep and a staph. But it is a strep and a staph, probably uh, uh, diagnosing a strep or staph endocarditis. Perhaps you don't need an ID doctor. <coughs> I think I doctor to diagnose the other 10 or 15% and what is causing it, right? So, um, so, uh, so, this um, is the most common one in the industrialized world right now is going to be staph aureus. So we spend a lot of time with the staph aureus and everywhere in the world. And it's mainly because it's nosocomial and IV drugs and lines and all this other stuff. Um, and the most common culture of culture negative endocarditis is going to be what? What do you think? What the, if you have culture and, and never culture endocarditis, brief antibiotic, one of the reasons you're right. But um, uh, uh, let me, I went back, let me go back. Um, it's Bartonella, actually, with uh, purely that the patient hasn't been on antibiotics. But you're right. I mean, if a patient being on antibiotics, it can be, but if you have somebody that, um, somebody that has been on, on that that has not been on antibiotics and you can't figure it out, uh, you always want to, and actually, um, not that long ago, we had, I, actually it was an employee of Tampa General um, that I care of, both with culture negative endocarditis and Bartonella, actually, he had had Marfan and he had had some uh, surgery and it was, uh, and it was, you know, the typical story yeah. of Bartonella. So, so that, so that, and, and understanding, we're going to go through a little bit Doing a that make doing a workup of culture negative endocarditis and by definition that they haven't been on antibiotics. So you're right. A lot of times they're negative because they have been on antibiotics. But if you have not been on antibiotics and and you have that group of culture negative, that's that's a workup that you should be very familiar with. Um, it's just some a picture of uh, some of the other things that uh, and a native valve is a prosthetic valve. Uh, in the native valves, um, you're going to see. Um, obviously, stuff uh, is, uh, in the over 50, over 60, a lot of strep and staff. But you can see some of the older ones, like enterococcus. You can see where younger patients are going to be unlikely to have as much enterococcus. But as you get older, um, because of you know issues with the GI and DU, have more. Uh, but when you start talking about prosthetic valve endocarditis, you can see how um, coagulant negative staff becomes more prominent. Uh, and you have more gram negative, um, you're going to have more culture negative endocarditis, uh, and if then, uh, you can have some, um, some fungi more in the prosthetic valve. 
So a great percentage uh, of patients have absolutely no underlying disease these days. Uh, but if you talk about underlying heart disease, you're going to think about congenital heart disease, degenerative heart disease is what all people get, you know, the valves get calcified, um, prosthetic valves, a lot of patients have aortic valves, mitral valves, both, um, and mitral valve prolapse. But nosocomial has become more and more because we do so many things to patients in terms of catheters, swan guns, catheters, and this and that, and all the things that we, uh, we do to patients uh, today. Also, a lot of the uh, other um, devices that we place on patients. Um, I mean, you can only have to go to, uh, you only have to go to, to an, cardiac unit or any ICU, they have so many tubes all over the place, the patients that want how, how it is that they don't get more endocarditis rather than less. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, I'm less interested on defining um, acute versus subacute endocarditis that understanding left-sided and right-sided endocarditis because some of the symptoms are going to be a little uh, different. And a lot of the nosocomial endocarditis is going to be right-sided. Why? Because you're having, is associated with um, with a lot of the devices that we put on patients, lines, swans, all of these other things that, that we do. Uh, and, we're gonna, and some of the difference, um, just before we move on, um, what would be, uh, if you see a patient with something that you say, hmm, that patient has endocarditis, probably uh, right-sided endocarditis. If, if you will get a pick a couple of joints that you would be concerned about. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those things in a minute. Uh, so uh, how is it that that you have, have endocarditis happen? Uh, basically in endocarditis, you have to have two things. You have to have turbulence, and a bacteria. So what happens is that uh, you have the endothelium of the heart of the valves, you have some turbulence over there. And because of the turbulence, you have that platelet and fibrin deposition, and that's why you form an emboli. Like we were saying before, an emboli doesn't necessarily mean that it's endocarditis that is infected. What has to happen somewhere else is that you have some mucus or membrane or something, or you put a line or you put a swan or you put a um, uh, a VAD or GAN nose. I mean, we do so many things to patients. Some disruption of, of the uh, venous or arterial system uh, or the skin happening over here, and then you have this deposition. It's a deposition alone, it may be just be lupus, you know? But if you have this happen, and now they both, they both meet, and now you have a, um, a vegetation that gets colonized, and now you have a mature vegetation that is showing uh, that it's infected. That's why you have to have turbulence and a bacteremia um, and that's what we are going to uh, that's how you have so you have a picture here of a typical a typical um, um, vegetation you can see uh, you can see the, the, the inside the heart and the valve you can see that obviously where the arrow is you have a vegetation and if you were going to look at it in, in pathology uh, you can see how it's cut and that's a typical uh, vegetation. Now, the, the classical syndrome is going to be fever, heart murmur, splenomegaly, and petechia. If a patient has a fever, has a heart murmur, has a big spleen, and has lesions, peripheral lesions, he may as well have a sign at the 
fed saying I have endocarditis. If you cannot make that diagnosis, turn down the light and go to bed. <laughs> but that's the classical syndrome. But unfortunately, patients don't have usually don't present in a classical way. Um, actually, any any organ can be affected. Any organ, um, a lot of the patients that especially those that start coming with subacute endocarditis are going to present with very non-specific symptoms like anorexia, weight loss, fatigue, night sweats. And actually, one of the most common, one of the most common presentations of patients with endocarditis is musculoskeletal complaints. So let's go back to what are the classical musculoskeletal complaints of patients with endocarditis? Any of the any of the fellows, give me a joint, please. One joint. Sternoclicular. For God's sake, if you don't know that as a second year, something's wrong with you, okay? A sternoclavicular joint. What is the other joint? If it's infected, you know the patient has endocarditis. Sacroiliac. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Let me explain this to you. If as, a, if as an ID fellow, you cannot tell. If somebody's, you go into a bed, and a patient has a bump up here, and if you don't know that that's endocarditis, there's something wrong with you by now. If they have an infected sacroiliac joint and you don't know that that is endocarditis, there's something wrong with you. I mean, promise you. You know, but many other joints can be involved, but those two, that's it. You have to know. Lice. So, so we have to we have to know that those two are classical. Now, we also have to know that any joint, because if a patient, you, you go to a patient's bed and they have a de novo, uh, whatever joint, an ankle, a knee, a whatever, and that patient has never had an injection in that joint, has never had a prosthetic anything, where did it come from? It cannot come from the air like boom. It has to come from the blood because joints, so musculoskeletal complaints, musculoskeletal uh, presentations are very common. So. Any organ can be affected, but and a lot of them come with non-specific signs, especially in subacute, like enterococcus, streps. Stuff usually is more acute, but musculoskeletal complaints uh, are very, very, very common. And sometimes they're immunological. They just feel achy because it may be an immunological issue. In terms of neurological complaints, you can have something, you can have an embolic phenomenon, right? Like a stroke, but you can also have a septic meningitis. A septic meningitis can be a presentation of endocarditis. And in the differential diagnosis of a septic meningitis, if you're an ID physician, you will always put endocarditis. And you have been doing this long enough, you will see that you, and you can even have something like a staph aureus that was, like she was saying, treated with antibiotics. Like I remember a case, I never forget, college student came from Gainesville, had, had been treated for a baffling cyst, infection or was all antibiotics, some kind of antibiotics, and gets admitted with a horrible headache, gets a lumbar puncture, a normal lumbar puncture. Nobody could figure out what's going on. When you get the whole story, eventually you realize that the girl uh, had uh, endocarditis, which the point of entry had been the Bartholin cyst that had been infected, had been given uh, um, antibiotics orally, and Gets a septic meningitis because you have been 
in and around antibiotics, no bad. And eventually, I actually eventually that grow, I grew staphylococcus in the blood. So, aseptic meningitis, because everybody think about the embolic stroke. So you can have aseptic meningitis, you can have strokes, you can also have mycotic aneurysms. Mycotic aneurysms are later. One of the typical present, one of the typical things that I have personally taken care of. I remember being at St. Joseph uh, one time, and there's this young guy. It didn't make any sense. Comes in with, um, with, a, with a hemorrhagic stroke, and that guy ended up growing a strep in the blood, and he had been a mycotic aneurysm um, because he he um, once was an IV drug abuser, and actually happened to be a strep, not a different organism. So you have to think, you know, when things don't add up, you need to think through it. So, so neurological symptoms are very common. In terms of renal symptoms, a lot of times you can have, you can have, you know, hematuria, but you can also have um, renal uh, failure because they may have the position of um, antibodies, more like a glomerulonephritis. Now, you cannot give a lecture of, of endocarditis without peripheral, talking about the peripheral manifestation. But as a matter of fact, they're not that common, actually, when you actually have patients. Uh, some of the patients that may have more of them are more of those subacute. Sometimes you can see the embolized, but you definitely, but if, if you have them, I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing that the patient has the sign of the top of the bed saying that this is what they have, right? So you do need to know, I mean, you should be able to recognize the peripheral manifestations of endocarditis with your eyes closed. So that is something that you have to know. So, uh, uh, if you look at uh, um, the fever, it's pretty common in endocarditis. A murmur, obviously very common. Uh, a new murmur or worse than an old murmur. But if you really think about the peripheral stigmata, like oscillate and things like that, they're not that common. But again, if they're there, it's obvious what they have. And you should be able to never be miss this as an infectious disease uh, physician. Um, obviously. Uh, CNS complications are fairly common, and so is any cardiac complications. Uh, and, and here we don't have musculoskeletal complications, but musculoskeletal complications are very common with endocarditis. Um, obviously, the conjunctival hemorrhages are very common, but you know there's other things that causes like a lot of a lot of times you, and that's what is so confusing sometimes because if you go to to an ICU with uh, or a cardiac ICU where patients have had surgery, especially if you have had open heart surgery. A lot of them have, um, have, uh, you, uh, you know, petechias in the eyes and the conjunctival. But in the correct um, setting, that would be very common, and there will be uh, this this issue. Now, gateway lesions are embolic phenomena. If you see them, you can see them, you know, like in this. But you can see them sometimes in the legs. You can see them in other places because it's an embolic phenomenon. And actually, sometimes, um, if you see them and um, in different parts of the body, you may be able to know the organism by getting that. For example, in, um, in for example, in, um, when you have fungal endocarditis, a lot of times the embolic phenomenon is the best way to know that what the organism is. Um, like for example, in candida or something like that, um, and the blood pressure may be more difficult to be positive. Blood spots in the eyes, and that is the picture. This is ocular nodes. Again, ocular nodes are uh, are tender and they actually they come and go because it's more of an it's not like Jane wave which is an embolic this is more immunological so they come and go and they can be tender um uh, splinters can be very subtle like this 
uh, and they can be obviously more like this, but that would be very, very less likely. Um, so you can have, so in the setup of endocarditis, you have a lot of other symptoms that can come from, uh, from embolization. Uh, we have talked about both having strokes or having mycotic aneurysms in the brain, but you can have mycotic aneurysms anywhere. You can have mycotic aneurysm in the legs. I mean, you can have an abscess in a leg or a thigh. You can have it anywhere else. Um, you can also have a pulmonary infiltrates, especially when you have uh, right-sided endocarditis and you have tricuspid valve involvement. You can have those septic embolize, and um, and that would be uh, uh, that that would be you know very uh, much telling you that indeed that patient has staph aureus and septic emboli. You don't need to do a whole a lot of uh, TEs to know that the patient has right endocarditis. So as a matter of fact, this happened to me just recently. I was on call the other day, and a patient gets moved from uh, elsewhere to a kindred hospital. The patient had, had staph aureus in the blood, and the plan was to treat for two weeks. When I look at the chest x-ray, there's a whole bunch of nodules, get a CT scan, there's septic emboli, and nobody had put that together yet. Okay. I promise you this is real. Uh, it's, it's so bizarre that, it, that, that I had to have double take, but this actually, uh, so we obviously, we quickly changed the plan of what the diagnosis was. So, so you see septic emboli on somebody that has had the correct time, correct thing in the, um, um, and th that will you know, do the diagnosis. Obviously, renal disease and peripheral disease involvement not only uh, of the skin with emboli, but you can have it in the muscles uh, everywhere because it's, it's in the vascular supply. And mycotic aneurysms a lot of times don't happen like at the, the, at the beginning. They can happen as a complication later. That's why you have to follow the patients. Um, and when you're seeing them, and they can happen anywhere in the brain, in the GI tract, um, in the extremities, anywhere. In terms of labs, um, the patient formally have anemia. Uh, actually, they may or may not have an elevated white cell, cell count. Maybe in a staph aureus and docadaris, you have a really high uh, white count, but some of the subacute may not. The blood cultures are always very important, but again, about 10% of cases of endocarditis may not. Uh, the EKG may or may not be abnormal, but it's important that you have that. Um, the uh, echo, the regular echo may, um, trans thoracic echoes may or may not be uh, normal. And, and sometimes, but that's why, you know, these days we do a lot of uh, uh, trans esophageal echoes. And the only reason why I have here cardiac cath is that for some reason a patient goes to the OR, you never take a patient to have any heart surgery without checking the coronaries, right? So you, if, if somebody that has to go, uh, has a baby patient, for some reason is going to go to the OR for, to change a valve, to do whatever, they always check the coronaries ahead of time. You never, so that's always. Um, so complications can be, uh, cardiac complications can be, you know, you can have, uh, obviously congestive heart failure because you have a valve that's not working. Uh, you can have a relapse, you know, you treated a patient and then uh, was not treated enough because perhaps, uh, for whatever reason, you can have abscesses, conductions, defects, but also it's important that we know that we can have infarctus and pericarditis. And there's some organisms that like to cause pericarditis more than others. Like for example, 
strep pneumoendocarditis, strep. Some of those seem to be more commonly associated with pericarditis, and that's an important diagnosis uh, to make. But you can have but conduction defects and abscesses, all of those can be uh, common. Um, you can have, obviously, a lot of extra cardiac um, complications, emboli, and we have, again, talked about it, mycotic aneurysm uh, and anything that has to do with the uh, neurological and musculoskeletal abnormalities. Okay, so now that we have talked about how it happens, turbulence, so how it happens, turbulence with a bacteremia forming uh, and taking a vegetation and getting it infected. Uh, we have talked about pathology, we have talked about the signs and symptoms. So now, how do we treat endocarditis? It's very much based on what the organism is. And I am honestly not going to spend a whole a lot of time um, or time in a specific things. I mean, I'm, I have it in the slides and you, ha you have it on the slides, but but this is something that you can always look up. Um, um, but anyway, so the treatment is very much based on on what the organism is, if, whether it's a staph, a strep, enterococcus, yeast, whatever, you're going to treat it differently, right? Um, it's very important that if you suspect endocarditis, knowing the organism is really important. So if there's a question, you only treat empirically those cases that are really, 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 um, really very sick uh, or that or that they clinically requires it. If somebody has a subacute case, you're better off by taking your cultures and waiting because it's going to benefit the patient to know what it is. I mean, it's very different to treat somebody with just penicillin or ampicillin than it is to treat somebody with vancomycin and God knows how many other things that we do. Um, Surgical consults should always be done on patients that have endocarditis once the, the diagnosis is done in case that they decompensate. Most people do not like to know about a patient uh, on Sunday at three o'clock in the morning, right? So it's good for the patient for them to know. We treat it with IV antibiotics. And it's important that, that we understand in these days where we take, in a, unfortunately, the world is so used to taking care of computers and labs instead of patients. This is a really good idea to examine these patients. Uh, you actually have to go to the bedside and actually put your hands on the patient, like make sure that there's not a new joint problem, make sure there's not a neurological change, uh, make sure that you listen to their heart, that they're not going into congestive heart failure. You know, it's a good idea on patients with endocarditis that you actually don't take care of the computer or the labs, or actually go to the bedside and make sure no new cardiac issues, no new musculoskeletal issues, no new neurological issues, because that's going to be a big, uh, a big deal. Um, and Nutrition uh, is not to be underestimated in any ID uh, uh, treatment. Now, if a patient has, if we see, for example, that the, the patient has some, what, the, the, depending on what he has, you want to make sure that the portal of entry is taken care of um, during, the, uh, during the therapy. The patient has an abscess or the patient has, or, or, or there's a, uh, um, BPH and it causes an organism that has to do with the urinary tract uh, or enterococcus or whatever else or, or GI, I mean, you know, from strep bovis with the new names and whatever you want to, those things should be taken because otherwise they may happen again, right? Um, and the question about later when the patient has prophylaxis, 
actually from probably, oh, we give a lot of prophylaxis for endocarditis. You all know that you get, a lot of people get prophylaxis for endocarditis. But at the end of the day, probably one of the few that are actually probably deserve to have it is those patients that have had endocarditis before. Is the saying, there's no better predictor of future than the past. So, if, so that is a group of patients that should actually, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, prophylaxis, bacterial prophylaxis for endocarditis, which is a controversial topic, but, but in probably in patients that have had endocarditis before, those, that's a group that probably should have it. Okay, so now that's the, you know, the typical end, uh, um, endocarditis that everybody, the, the patient has the symptoms, you have the positive cultures, uh, and you have, you have been examining the patient, making sure that, um, that nothing happens and you're actually going to the bedside and you're actually checking for cardiac complications, for neurological complications, for musculoskeletal complications, but you're actually examining the patient and talking to the patient and the family every day to make sure none of those things are happening. But there's this subgroup that no matter how much, how many cultures we did and we looked and tried to biopsy the embolic, um, whatever lesion in the leg or the whatever, uh, or try to culture them and you still don't know, so we need to do a culture-negative endocarditis workup. So we need to know what are the causes of culture-negative endocarditis, and this is an important thing for an infectious disease fellow to know. And what are those? Those are, I already told you that the most common one of this family is going to be Bartonella. Um, obviously, Bartonella Hensley, and that was what I was telling you, that not that long ago I took care of a patient at it's actually an employee of the hospital with uh, Bartonella Hensley uh, endocarditis because, you know, cats are common, you know, people have lots of them. So, so, so we have a list of things that we need to rule out and how to do the workup for those. Uh, so you have nutritional variant streps, Bartonella, whether it's Hensley or Quintana, Q fever, the HACIC group, um, and you have to know this, uh, this group. Uh, I personally have had Patients with parifluenza endocarditis, um, Itinella. Uh, actually, we think that we're taking care of one right now with Itinella. Uh, Chlamydia, Tryponema, Legionella, Brucella. Uh, so all of those things um, in this area, Florida is mycobacterium, a typical mycobacterium capital of the world. Did you know that in Florida we have a lot of micro, atypical mycobacterial disease? And mycobacterium abscessus is very common. We have had bad patients with mycobacterium abscesses, bad infections. We have had uh, pacer infections. We have had all kinds, we have had every infection of the intravascular system that you can think of with mycobacterium abscesses. That's a difficult organism to, to, uh, to, um, uh, to treat, but you can't even start treating it unless you make the diagnosis, you culture it, and you get some sensitivity. So you have to think about it, right? So it's important that we and and we actually uh, uh, do these things. Obviously, there are other atypical mycobacterial disease that can also be, but we mycobacterium abscesses just happen to be very common in this area. But you can have other atypical mycobacterium in that family. So when we are trying to do a workup for culture negative endocarditis, we're going to use um, other tools. We're going to use the tools of PCR or histopathology, serology, special medias. We're going to have to use other tools other than blood cultures, right? Because obviously, 
the blood cultures were negative. That's why it's culture negative endocarditis. So we need to use other tools. Um, there are, um, when we move on to pathology, there's some tissue stains that can help a lot in uh, diagnosis of any ID diagnosis. And these are a list of different stains that as an ID physician, you should be familiar with. Um, like acrine orange can detect any bacteria. Um, Giensa, the same. Uh, there are something called tissue gram stains. So you have a patient that have been on antibiotics and they took out the valve and looks like a vegetation and you're going crazy trying to figure out what it is. Well, then ask your pathology friend to do a brown hoof, a brown brand, and to differentiate between gram positive and gram negative bacteria. Knowing a little bit about some of these things, and this is kind of like I'm putting here the setup of endocarditis, but this is the kind of thing that you need to know even independently of endocarditis. Um, uh, a PLS can really pick up fungi and speak with me very well. Or Bartonella, I hope by now everybody knows what a warfarin stain it is. Or as it's fast as CO Nelson for uh, Jimenez is very good for Legionella and Coxiella, Coxiella Brunetti, um, and so forth. Um, for Chlamydia, Gomori, Rotok for fungi. So there are all these stains that are very, very useful to make different diagnoses. I encourage you that if you don't know about these stains, you take the time to number one, even learn that they exist, number two, how they look uh, and what they're using for, because that can help a lot in pathology of whether you have like an emboli and you're looking, you are looking at, and you may not be able to culture anything because I mean, you're, how are you going to culture chlamydia? Okay. How are you going to culture? I, told, I mean, it's kind of hard to culture some of these things, but if you see them in an emboli because you have the right stain or in the valve that they took out when you're going crazy trying to figure out that that can be very helpful. These are not valves, but I was trying to show you getting some picture how this stains look, because obviously I don't have a stain, so a valve with aspergillus, I couldn't find one, but that's what aspergillus looks like, uh, and, and obviously we, uh, and how it looks like in a PAS. Um, this is how Bartonella looks, cut scratch, uh, how it looks uh, in a Worthing series silver stain. So it's just to show you the stain, not that these are valves. Um, this is how an AFV would look. Um, uh, this is how you're going to have in a Gomori uh, stain, how you're going to have different types of, uh, of fungal uh, organisms look so that, so that you're familiar. And, and I encourage you to, you know, in the internet, that's how I got found this, this, some of these pictures, even though I have pictures of uh, all kinds of books and all kinds of things, but you can look up and learn how some of these things look like. Um, this is a very common stain, this is a gems stain. Uh, and, and you can see bacteria in there very well how in a gems stain. This is how uh, an acridine orange stain looks like, and you can again see uh, bacteria. So there are a lot of stains that can be used when you're trying to look for, um, for culture negative endocarditis if you have pathology, which may be the only thing you have uh, because the cultures were negative. Um, when it comes to um, PCR technology, we have PCR for Seponema wipely, we have PCR for Coxiella, for Bartonella. Uh, so, uh, and some of, so some of these, these will tell you 
uh, which they, what they are. Um, but for example, for Bantonella is very good, and for Tuponema, uh, Wafer is very good. So we have a lot. So PCR technology now is available to make the diagnosis for a lot of these things. So now, uh, so understanding how to do a good workout for uh, whether you do, and then obviously some of the other ones you're going to do serology. So whether it is pathology, whether it's PCR or serology, that will help you make the diagnosis of culture negative endocarditis. Okay, um, and obviously we also do know that we have fungal fungal blood cultures, AFP blood cultures are part. All of those things have to be taken in consideration. Now, when do we have surgery with um, uh, with endocarditis? If a patient goes into congestive heart failure, of course, if there's peribarbial disease, if you're not controlling the infection, um, despite, you know, you're giving every antibiotic and patient is not doing well, um, um, and and that, that needs to be make sure that, you know, that that's another indication. You also have to remember that you may want to assess for metastatic infection so that, and take care of that before you do, um, before you do the surgery. Uh, there's certain um, certain bacteria that that is strongly requires surgery or is strongly recommended. Like it's hard to clean up a valve, uh, especially when you have a prosthetic valve with Pseudomonas, Brucella, Candida, some of these other uh, um, and and the resistance. Obviously, with mechanical valves, uh, in, you you may be able to sterilize a bioprosthetic valve like a pig valve, but you're not going to sterilize a piece of metal. It's just, you know, metals do not absorb antibiotics, right? Um, if a patient has a lot, lot of them, have already two embolic phenomena, that's something that it is very concerning that that has to be changed. Or if you have one and then you have a large vegetation. Uh, but after, after some kind of brain event, usually the surgery has to be delayed for about three weeks. So, so the, some, of, some of the considerations that you have to be familiar with is you cannot ask a surgeon to do something that is unreasonable. You cannot ask, you cannot tell a cardiothoracic surgeon, hey, I need you to change a valve when the patient had a stroke a week ago. So you need to, you know, you have to know these things so that you, you sound knowledgeable and you, you're able to make plans as part of the team. Question about the two episodes of embolization. Are those two episodes in the sense they're separated in time or two episodes in the sense that they're separated in where they embolize to? Time. Time, okay. Um, okay, so uh, now we talked about surgery. Um, staff aureus, you know, is a, you get a lot of consoles because somebody, some, there's a staph aureus consult in the blood. So when do you worry about endocarditis with um, um, with the staph aureus and the patient comes from the community and he has a staph aureus and there's not an abscess somewhere, there's not a primary focus somewhere, that is a very concerning thing. So you're going to really look, rule out endocarditis on those patients. Um, so anybody, and if you see a metastatic lesion anywhere, obviously, um, and um, if you have a patient that has had a positive blood culture, after you have removed all the lines, but they consistently be positive. And obviously, if you have a positive TE, that's why we do so many TEs on this patient with the staph aureus because it's the fastest way 
to figure out one way or the other. And God knows that these days hospitals are, you know, drive-by those. So you have to get them in and get them out. So how quickly can we do that? Uh, so they drive. If you want to be a drive, PE is faster. But but on but if somebody comes from the community doesn't have a full site. Um, that's a pretty good indication. Or obviously because we have so many nosocomial uh, endocarditis. Now you have a bacteremia after uh, three days of catheter removal with the same organism. That's a problem. Um, I added this just so that when you're looking at some of those culture negative or the weird cases, can, can be reminded that we actually, it's a good idea to talk to patients uh, about dog or cat exposures because you're going to have bactonella. And actually, pastorella, we see endocarditis with pastorella. We have all seen that. Now and then, um, you know, the contact with animals. And these things are important for you to know, even outside of endo, in, endocarditis, outside, when you're trying to evaluate patients, that's what we talk to patients about what they have been doing. Um, um, so, whether there is a dog or a cat with Bartonella or Pasurella, um, actually, we just had a case of uh, a mesh infection on a lady with a hernia, but she had a cat and she got Pasurella in an abscess in a hernia mesh infection. I don't know what she was doing with that cat, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I promise you, I saw that, that when I was on call. Uh, so, uh, you know, contaminated milk, brucella, um, and, um, and actually, these days, you know, we see some people that are, that are quote-unquote, very natural. They, they won't take antibiotics, they won't take vaccines, they won't do any of that. Because, you know, they're very natural. And you know what they do? They eat raw meat and they take, they get toxic. They drink raw milk and they get, uh, and they get, uh, um, and they get brucella. I mean, that big, how horrible case of toxo that we saw at Tampa General. The girl, she's very natural. She says, she's a yoga girl. <laughs> she, she doesn't take the COVID vaccine. She doesn't take any vaccine. But you know what she did? She ate raw deer. I swear raw to raw people. Raw deer? I know. <laughs> so but she got toxo. I mean, poor thing. I mean, that's horrible. But my point is that people are contradictory. So talking to patients, and obviously, I mean, I'm being judgmental, which is a horrible thing, but they, I mean, talk, talking to people, getting what they do is so important to make a diagnosis. I mean, I'm not kidding you about, I mean, everybody has known about this case. It's true. I mean, the, the yoga girl that got disseminated toxo, I mean, <laughs> I, I, has everybody not heard about this? Never got vaccinated for anything? But she eats raw meat and gets toxo and bad toxo, like toxo pneumonia? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a case that just happened, guys. I mean, I'm not making this up. <laughs> I couldn't make it up if I wanted to. So, so <laughs> the transplantations, you're going to have, like, for example, the, uh, actually, aspergillus in solid organs, uh, in endocarditis, in some of the cases we have we have seen, and also, uh, so so you, some of these things are important to know. Um, now, the only thing I'm going to tell you about this, uh, because, number one, I to be watched for all the time. And number two, honestly, you can look this up. In, in, actually, this is the John, John Sennett idea. Please don't waste your time learning how to do therapies. You can look that up. Your job as a doctor is to make the diagnosis. The therapy is always available in anywhere. And I had never heard John Sennett talk about treatment of anything in my life. Okay. And those that know him know that what I'm saying is true. 
But anyway, the only thing you have, the only reason why I'm putting the slides up with all this other, other stuff that you can all look it up, it is true. These are the recommendations. And then the last recommendation of therapy, and you have them in there so that you want, you want them. But is that when you have a prep, you need to actually look at MICs. It's one time where you have to look at MICs. So the therapy is going to be based on whether the MIC is less than 0 0.12. It's something that in a board question, you're probably going to have to understand that uh, in the future. So the, you have an MIC is less than 0 0.12. The therapy, obviously, you might even get away with two weeks of therapy on the correct, uh, in the correct case. Again, it's all here. Also, when you're treating endocarditis, you want to treat with high doses. Like, you know, when you talk about penicillin, we're talking 12 to 18 milligrams. When you're talking about procephin, you're talking, um, you know, two grams. Uh, you're talking, you know, higher doses of medications. So that's that's the only points I'm going to make. I'm not going to go through every little thing. So in a strep, you have three levels. You have the less than 0 0.12, the ones between 0.12 and less than 0 0.5, which are, which are, which are uh, the relatively resistant to penicillin. If it's under 0.12, it's totally sensitive to penicillin, and penicillin alone is good. This is a, kind of like the in-between. And now you're talking about um, making sure that you add uh, gentamicin for uh, for two weeks or doing vancomycin on this on this group. And then there's the one that is um, uh, over 0.5. So I'm just going to move on to this. This is because honestly, I'm not going to spend time talking about this uh, a whole lot. I want to um, mention uh, very little use for adding gentamicin to endocarditis anymore. Refamping is okay. I want to talk a little bit about prophylaxis. Um, prophylaxis is a very controversial topic. You will get more phone calls about prophylaxis, about anything what, once, because patients, all the everybody wants to get antibiotics. Do not get endocarditis, not to not to get uh, endocarditis. But actually, if you really read about it, it's really hard to find good data about endocarditis and prophylaxis. The problem is that the most of the prophylaxis happens with dental prophylaxis, and every day when you flush, you probably get bacteremic. So, I mean, there's a studies of there's studies about 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 whether the whether the Number of endocarditis have increased. I mean, if you read about it, whether it's Mandel, American Heart Association endocarditis guidelines, up to date, you read all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you want to um, you want to to limit who you give uh, and prophylaxis. And again, the data is very questionable. Maybe just for the high risk, it's a little better. Um, more important than anything else is patients that have a high risk for endocarditis. It would be a really good idea to have good oral hygiene. And good oral hygiene means that they actually brush their teeth, that they actually floss normally, that they don't bleed, and that they go to the dentist. That is your best bet rather than all of this other stuff. But so my main so I on, honestly, it drives you crazy when you see a patient with a horrible mouth and then they're gonna do cardiac surgery or put a valve or something. Well, the problem is that the healthcare system is screwed up. Um, somebody like that has no coverage for dentistry, but it has coverage to have a valve. <laughs> I mean, you all know it. I'm not kidding you. So, and they're going to take it. They're going to put a valve, but nobody's going to take care of the teeth first. So anyway, so the highest risk of cardiac prosthetic valve 
cardiac valve repair, left ventricular assisted crisis, prior endocarditis, like I said, that's a big deal. Congenital heart disease, you know, we always have all those trans uh, catheter implantation or prosthesis valve. And in, in cardiac transplant, usually the transplant itself is not a big deal if they already have cardiac valvulopathy. Uh, um, and the, you know, amoxicillin is the most common one. Actually, clindomycin used to be very commonly used. It's no longer. Now, cephalexin, cithromans, or doxy. Uh, and it has to do with the uh, side effects of clindomycin. Uh, for respiratory tract procedures, only if you have biopsy, um, like, a, uh, like, a thin, like a tonsillectomy or, bronchosco uh, or bronchoscopy with biopsy. Um, for skin and soft tissue, if you know what, what if you already know that the abscess is aureus or whatever, uh, you target that. If you do not know what the abscess is and you're going to, and the person is at high risk and you're going to drain that, then cover MRSA and a strep. Uh, for GI and GU, uh, there's usually no routine prophylaxis, uh, uh, but mainly, but if you have a patient with very high risk cardiac condition, you want to always cover enterococcus. If a patient is going to have a GU procedure, what you need to know is know what is going in the urine, treat that before the procedure. That's a whole lot more than worrying about prophylaxis, right? Um, and if a patient has been on long-term antibiotics for whatever reason, and it's, and it's one of these high-risk procedures, you want a different antibiotic for the prophylaxis. It's like just the kind of like the, the concepts, okay? Um, and I mentioned that in this world that we live in, there's a lot of cardiac implantable electronic devices. And those are a big name for pacers and ICDs and all of those things that be cardio. And the, and the pacers and ICDs, they can come transvenous, and they have epicardial leads. Obviously, the transvenous ones are the ones that have the highest chance of developing an intravascular infection, right? Uh, epicardial leads less, but still those. And then there's the new devices, which is a good thing that now we have uh, no transvenous, no epicardial leads. Uh, so we have leadless pacers uh, that are placed transcutaneously with no pockets and no leads. So those are things that are really uh, have improved the chances, they will decrease the chances of these people getting endocarditis or any intravascular infection. And when you talk about these infections, the principles are that you want, they're gonna need antibiotics. They're gonna have to, when if there's an explantation, you don't want any leads left over. I, I, I could tell you so many stories of patients that have recurrent, like I, have, I just remember a little old man, E. coli, over and over again, but they had left a couple of leads inside because they were too hard to take out. Until they came to Tampa, you actually had to have open heart surgery to take out the leads. Well, the guy has the leads in there, and they don't don't come don't come out um, uh, through the veins. Well, then the transvenous leads they need to come out. So the reimplantation has to be put after every uh, only, and you always want to make sure you never that the indication are there. A lot of times, about twenty percent of the time. There's no free reason to do a reimplantation because you know people may not need it anymore. Um, these are just concepts. If valve or lead, or there is a valve, you always do a transesophageal echo on these patients. And if the valve or the lead vegetation you treat for endocarditis, if there's no lead or valve vegetation, um, but they have the correct organism, of course you're going to treat for endocarditis. If you have high grade bacteremia, you're going to treat for endocarditis. Um, and um, the only group that you may be able to treat shorter is the pocket infections with no system or systemic infection. You may be able to get away with two weeks. Um, and obviously, uh, when I said you're going to always try to take out all these leads transvenously, but in certain cases, it's, there's a broken lead, it's a lead that is not coming out, 
and the patient has persistent bacteremia, you're going to have to have, do open heart surgery. Sometimes when you have a very large vegetation, um, you also have to have open heart surgery for that. But at the end of the day, the concept that they need antibiotics, that everything has to come out if it's infected. And, and honestly, I was going to put here some of the, um, uh, some of the algorithm. You can go to up to date. I mean, the algorithms are there. You can go anywhere. The important thing is that you have the principles, and obviously there's also no time uh, to, to go through them or what to do to reimplant, when to reimplant. The concepts are that you got it. If there's an infection, if there's just a little superficial pocket infection, you may be able to save it. But otherwise, the whole thing is going to have to come out. Uh, and and the most important thing is how does it come out? Does it come transvenously or does it need open heart surgery? Make sure you have to know about the vegetation. You need to know about the organism. And then you can figure out when to put it back. And there's 20,000 algorithms about that. But it's important that you know that those things are and and looking forward to the future where we won't have as many of these um, implantable devices that have uh, leads that are transvenously or epicardially placed. Okay, we're done. Okay. Mm -hmm.